0: Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators presented by poetryfoundation.org. In this program, Edward Hirsch examines the complex relationships between American poets and painters. Edward Hirsch is a poet and critic and currently serves as president of the Guggenheim Foundation. He spoke at the opening night of American Perspectives. This year-long celebration of the diversity of artistic expression in America was a collaboration of the Art Institute of Chicago, the Chicago Symphony, and the Poetry Foundation. It included exhibitions, performances, poetry readings, and lectures such as the one you're about to hear, which took place at the Art Institute of Chicago on September 15, 2007. Here's Edward Hirsch on How to Read Poetry and Encounter Art.
1: For me, the word perspectives implies different ways of looking at things a plurality of views, and suggests the act of seeing itself. There's never just one perspective, and there's not just a single American art, but many arts, many ways of viewing the enterprise of art itself, just as there are many American poetries. There are always at least 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. This sense of plurality, of varying perspectives, does not just point to the difference between artists but also the divisions within ourselves, within each of us. I resist anything better than my own diversity, Walt Whitman declares in Song of Myself, a wide open American epic. I am large, I contain multitudes. This perception of multiple selves can be sometimes self-contradictory, though that doesn't seem to bother our native thinkers. Do I contradict myself? Whitman shrugs in his typically good-natured way, Very well, then. I contradict myself. So, too, Ralph Waldo Emerson famously announced, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. This somewhat aggressive sense of our own multitudinousness, our rich and strange inner lives, our pluralities, is one of the most stubborn and persistent features of the American mind and art, one of our ways of uttering what Whitman calls the word democratic, The word en masse. Whitman was incited by Emerson. I was simmering, 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 Whitman declared. Emerson brought me to a boil. The philosopher who, for good or ill, most directly reflects the American mentality. Emerson began his first book, Nature, with a powerful question about positing a particular American identity. Why should we not also enjoy an original relation to the universe? He staked everything on the notion of self-reliance. Trust thyself, he declared. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. And yet he also called each man a congress of nations. The self he exalted is organic and unfixed, something to be invented at the edge of an abyss. Emerson's commitment to the country's present rather than its past relationship with England There are new lands, new men, new thoughts, is an ongoing incitement. In terms of his poetics, he developed the idea of organic form, which is to say the idea of form as a living organism, something that grows like a plant from its seed. This was the premise of his core notion that it is not meters, but a meter-making argument that makes a poem, a thought so passionate and alive that Like the spirit of a plant or an animal, it has an architecture of its own and adorns nature with a new thing. Emerson thought of words as actions, thereby prefiguring the pragmatic philosophy of William James and John Dewey, who in art as experience clearly distinguished between the art product, statue, painting, or whatever, and the work of art. Action for these thinkers is located not in the result, but in the ongoing movement towards something. The feeling for active transitions, for the energizing power of movement, for the viability of the transitional surface, reverberates through all the arts. William Carlos Williams wrote a key essay called The Poem as a Field of Action, but it seems to have special applicability to modern painting in general and to action painting in particular. Works of art are deeds. Emerson sought a philosophy of what he calls fluxions and mobility. One of his favorite words was abandonment. The way of life is wonderful, he announced in his essay circles. It is by abandonment. His work sounds a clarion call for movement, action, transport. He abhorred stasis and could never rest or stay still for long. Power ceases in the instant of repose He wrote in his manifesto, Self-Reliance. It resides in the movement of transition from a past to a new state, in the shooting of the gulf, in the darting to an air. Another of Emerson's favorite words was contact, which became the title of a magazine that William Carlos Williams co-edited in the 1920s. Its aim was to, quote, emphasize the local phase of the game of writing, end quote. My own view of reading poetry and indeed of encountering art has to do with contact, with direct experience of the thing itself. It may not be an exclusively American idea that the poet and the reader should connect and meet as equals, as two people complicit in the creative process, but it does have a certain native power and relates especially to the American ethos. In art, as in life, Nothing can substitute for firsthand experience, the exhilarating nature of discovery, the aesthetic thrill, an almost physical sensation that comes with each reading or viewing or listening for that matter. Nothing can replace connection because the moment of contact between poem and reader, painting and viewer, is the moment in which a static medium can begin to come to life. Here, for example, is Walt Whitman's little 1860 poem called simply To You, which I recently found displayed on the New York subway as part of Poetry in Motion. I had a very surreal moment because I was going over my talk on the subway, and I was reading this poem To You by Whitman, and then I looked up and I saw it on the subway, (laughs) and and then I looked back at my paper, and then I looked back at the the subway, and I thought, boy, reality is really beginning to conform to my own fantasy, <laughs> fantasy life. I, I, I'm, I'm really in trouble, because I thought I was, for a moment, I thought I was hallucinating the, the subway, but I, I've ridden the subway many other days, and I haven't had that same, same experience again. So this is to you. It's a very simple little poem. Stranger, if you passing meet me and desire to speak to me, why should you not speak to me? And why should I not speak to you? This poem consists of two plain-spoken questions. It seems evident to Whitman that strangers who pass each other on the road, or on the trolley or the subway for that matter, ought to be able to stop and speak to each other directly. There's no hierarchy between them. Strangers who meet might become friends. This implies a different sort of poetic one involving potentially connected human beings, than the tradition of the envoy, which begins, go little book. Whitman Whitman wants something more direct, personal, and seemingly unmediated. He's aware that the literary connection is not actually like this. He's not as sanguine or anxiety-free as he might seem. Why else posit the poem as questions? Yet he makes it feel entirely natural for two people, stand-ins for the poet and his reader to loiter and connect. Here's another two-line poem called simply, Thou Reader. 21 years later, Whitman still hasn't given up on the dream of interchange. Thou reader throbbest life and pride and love the same as I, therefore for thee the following chance. Whitman recognizes that his unseen reader has the same throb of life, the same pulsing emotions as himself. This to him constitutes the logic that therefore, the emphatic word is borrowed from the language of argumentation, he should dedicate his poems to his unknown but fraternal reader, his longed-for equal. Whitman calls his poems the following chants, and indeed, as Northrop Fry puts it, chanting gives verse a heretic quality removing it from the language of common speech, and it thereby increases the exhilaration of poetry, bringing it nearer to the sphere of the heroic. On one hand, Whitman wants something that is spoken, but on the other, he seeks something a little beyond or above speech, something close to singing or prophecy. There's a great unfulfilled longing, a desperate American yearning in Whitman's determined and intense gesture to greet recognize, and move the reader. The sense of movement and transport, physical, emotional, spiritual, is one of the obsessive features of American poetry and art. The meaning emerges in transit, discovery is all. The quality of imagination is to flow and not to freeze, Emerson declares in the poet. One perception must immediately and directly lead to a further perception, Charles Olson exclaims in capital letters in his essay Projective Verse. The Emersonian faith in organic process, the kinetics of the thing, seems to anticipate Harold Rosenberg's controversial 1952 assertion about action painting. Here's Rosenberg. At a certain moment, the canvas began to appear to one American painter after another as an arena in which to act rather than as a space in which to reproduce, redesign, analyze, or express an object, actual or imagined. What was to go on the canvas was not a picture, but an event. The painter no longer approached his easel with an image in his mind. He went up to it with material in his hand to do something to that other piece of material in front of him. The image would be the result of this encounter. So, too, in Alone with America, Richard Howard characterizes his own diverse generation of poets, from A.R. Ammons to James Wright, in an Emersonian way as the children of Midas, who address themselves to the current, to the flux, to the process of experience rather than its precepts. The commitment to process and flow, the attempt to create a sense of movement by poets and painters, is a powerful element in the vital connection between American poetry and painting. Though all the arts are inextricably linked, the long history of the sibling relationship between the so-called sister arts, poetry and painting, reached a kind of apex in the modern era. One of the symptoms of the spiritual condition of our age, Baudelaire said of Delacroix, is that the arts aspire if not to take one another's place at least reciprocally to lend one another new powers. Modern American poetry and painting have especially lent each other fresh powers. They've stimulated and sustained each other ever since the early modern era when verbal and visual artists shared overlapping pursuits. The first part of the 20th century was a time of many isms, and these polemics radiated through all the arts. Much of modernism itself seems dynamically pictorial. Think of imagism, which T.S. Eliot called the starting point of modern poetry. The movement, which was based in London but launched in Chicago through Poetry Magazine, was devoted to clarity of expression through the use of precise visual images. Ezra Pound, newly appointed Poetry Magazine's foreign editor, had painting in mind when he called for a new poetry based on the image, which he defined as that which presents an intellectual and emotional complex in an instant of time. When Hilda Doolittle showed Pound her new poem, Hermes of the Ways, in the tea and bun shop at the British Museum, he slashed and praised it, scrawled H.D. Imagist across the bottom, thus settling on Doolittle's pen name, and fired it off with two other poems to Poetry Magazine, where Amy Lowell subsequently read them and decided that she, too, was an imagist. H.D.'s poems, some classically-minded pieces by her husband, Richard Aldington, and Pound's now classic haiku-like poem, In a Station of the Metro, which appeared in poetry in April 1913, are some of the founding texts of imagism. Here is H.D.'s early six-line poem, Oriad, published in the anthology Some Imagist Poets. Whirl up, sea, whirl your pointed pines. Splash your great pines on our rocks. Hurl your green over us. Cover us with your pools of fur. Pound singled out this poem, which was untitled when it first appeared in Blast, as an exemplum of imagism. It is short, direct, rhythmically organic, free of emotional slither, and it hinges on a visual correlation and equivalency, the waves made of pines, the trees made of water. At first glance, the poem seems simply to portray in an economical snapshot an image of the sea as a forest, but H.D.'s subsequent title suggests that the oread, a wood or mountain nymph, is the actual speaker ordering up the sea, commanding it, And thus, this gives the poem a psychological dimension. In other words, when H.D. gave the poem to Pound and he published it in the magazine called Blast, um, which was the lead magazine for a short-lived movement called Vorticism, it didn't have any title. And this gives a suggestion that the poem is is a simple equation, um, an astonishing visual equation. She sees the waves and they look like the tops of pines. Um, But then later, when she published it in an anthology, and then for the rest of her life when she published it in books, she gave it the title Oread. And I'm suggesting that by giving it that title, she makes the Oread, or the Wood or Mountain nymph, a speaker. And by giving the poem a speaker who sees this image of the waves as water, the poem takes on a psychological dimension that it wouldn't otherwise have. Oriad thus becomes a poem not just about nature, but also about the consciousness of a specific female speaker. It has a rapt incantatory quality, a phallic power, and sense of violent enthrallment. Look at the words swirl, splash, hurl that bring it into the realm of sexual fantasy. Its movement is both physical and emotional. As Susan Stanford Friedman puts it, the visual language of imagism parallels the mechanisms of dream work. That's as much as I'm willing to talk about sex in front of my family. (laughs) Uh, Imagism was a seedbed like the short-lived but dynamic movement vorticism, which defined the image as the primary pigment of poetry, and objectivism, which was codified by Louis Zukofsky in a 1931 issue of poetry. The Objectivist treated the poem as a structural object, like a symphony or a cubist painting, as Williams put it. Thinking of these early movements leads me to thinking of cubism, which took place around the time, And thinking of cubism leads me to the sentences of Gertrude Stein, her cubist methods and verbal constructions, her sense that in composition, one thing is as important as another thing. Each part is as important as the whole. Stein's study of cubist techniques, the fragmenting of three-dimensional objects in time and space, led her to the still life of objects in her book, Tender Tenderbundance, where she approaches her subjects from various perspectives. Stein's study of Cubism also led her to the abstractions of a continuous present in her series of Cubist portraits. What Susan Sontag said about Duchamp is relevant to Stein's use of diction, punctuation, syntax, and narrative order. And up here you have uh, Marcel Duchamp's Nude Descending a Staircase from 1912. Sontag said, the point of Duchamp's New Descending a Staircase is not so much to represent anything, much less a nude descending a staircase, as to teach a lesson on how natural forms may be broken into a series of kinetic planes. Both the poet and the painter are attempting to create dynamic movement out of the static media of words and paint. The ferments of a new age and a new art had a terrific impact on the European branch of American modernism, which includes Pound, who once planned a college of arts in London for the inter-stimulus inter and inter-enlightenment of painters, sculptors, and writers, as well as T.S. Eliot. The wasteland would also would be impossible to imagine without the strategies of collage. It also had a tremendous ramifications for American art on our side of the ocean, or what Pound used to call our side of the wet. I'm thinking especially of the romantic strain of American modernism, which includes Hart Crane and the visually-minded Wallace Stevens, who wrote, painting, Poetry and painting alike create through composition. I can never stand in the shadow of Picasso's old guitarist without remembering Wallace Stevens's poem, Man with the Glue Guitar. Is this picture of Picasso's, this horde of destructions, a picture of ourselves now, an image of our society? Stevens moved from a commitment to the visual image to an investigation of the artistic imagination, which represents, as he said, the power of the mind over the possibility of things. Like light, it adds nothing but itself. A mythology reflects its region, as Stevens puts it. And the ferment in the visual arts also had great impact on the local or homemade strait of American modernism which includes E. Cummings, who called poetry and painting his twin obsessions. His typographical experiments turn his poems into visual objects, as well as Marianne Moore and William Carlos Williams, who both had aspirations as artists. Moore studied color theory and entitled her second book, Observations. It comes to this, she declared in the poem when I buy pictures, of whatever sort it is, it must be lit with piercing glances into the life of things. It must acknowledge the spiritual forces which have made it. And I, and, I, and I wanted to read a poem. Williams enjoined his readers to remember I had a strong inclination all my life to be a painter, adding, under different circumstances, I would rather have been a painter than to bother with these goddamn words. <laughs> I feel the same. Williams was liberated by the shock waves of the armory show. He recalled laughing with great relief, the relief of liberation, when he saw Duchamp's nude. Uh, He was a friend of the painter's Charles DeMuth, whom he had met over a bowl of prunes in Mrs. Chain's boarding house in Philadelphia. Marsden Hartley, who was himself also a modernist poet, John Marin and Charles Sheeler. In 1938, Constance Rourke looked back and described his friend, the friendship between Williams and Sheeler as representative of the cooperation of the arts during the entire era. This is a Marsden Hartley painting, um, which is at the Art Institute called Simply Movements, 1913. Um, this is a painting by John Marin called Movement. You'll see I have a motif going here. Um, and this is a Charles Sheeler called uh, The Artist Looks at Nature from 1943. It's also in the, um, in the Art Institute. Um, I edited a, a book for the artist called Transforming Vision, and John Hollander wrote a wonderful... It's a po- book where the paintings are on one side, or the sculpture on one side, and the, the writings of the poems and the short stories and the essays are on the other side, on Foss. And John Hollander wrote a terrific poem about this painting, where he makes a lot of the fact that the artist is looking at nature, but he's got himself in there looking uh, in the right-hand corner. Um, So the artist looking is the key part of of, of what he's beholding. Uh, Williams was instigated by the gatherings at Walter Aaron'sberg's studio. He frequented Alfred Stieglitz's Gallery 291. All that group was able to do was done by the spirit of 291, Hartley wrote, for that group was never but a single spirit and a single voice, and later its successor, an American place which he decided was named after his book, In the American Grain. Uh, Stieglitz always said it was named for something else, but Williams was sure it was named after his own book. Williams considered the arrangement of words on the page closely analogous to the way paint was laid on canvas. We were restless and constrained, closely allied to painters, he recalled. Impressionism, Dadaism, surrealism applied to both painting and the poem. In his early phase, Williams focused on the Cubist tradition on the home milieu, assigning Cubists, aligning Cubist fragmentations with those of American photography, Stieglitz, Steichen, and making poetry out of the awareness that came to him in part from these sources. Williams concentrated his attention on the individual object caught at a moment in transition, an instant in time. No ideas but in things was his mantra, and wrote dozens of short poems focusing on the actuality, the thisness of the world itself. Here is William's iconic poem, The Great Figure, from his book Sour Grapes, which was published in 1921 and dedicated to Stieglitz, and it prompted Charles DeMuth's vibrant painting, I Saw the Figure Five in Gold. Among the rain and lights, I saw the figure five in gold on a red fire truck moving, tense, unheated, to gong clangs, siren howls, and wheels rumbling through the dark city. Williams explained the genesis of this poem in his autobiography. Once on a hot July day, coming back exhausted from the postgraduate clinic, remember that William Carlos Williams was a doctor, I dropped in, as I sometimes did, at Marsden Hartley's studio on 15th Street for a talk, a little drink maybe and to see what he was doing. As I approached his number, I heard a great clatter of bells and the roar of a fire engine engine passing on the street down Ninth Avenue. I turned just in time to see a golden figure five on a red background flash by. The impression was so sudden and forceful that I took a piece of paper out of my pocket and wrote a short poem about it. Williams defined a poem as a machine made out of words. And this 12-line lyric is a precise little machine. There's no redundancy in a machine, and each word here functions as a component of the whole. A striking feature of the poem is the way the image flashes into the poet's view, his field of attention. There's something of a snapshot about it. It singles out and concentrates on the five as a single gold digit. Movement is stilled within time, but it continues on a new, strictly limited plane outside of time, determined no longer by actual progression but by visual tensions. The speaker pauses to detail what might be called his units of perception, moving, tense, unheeded. And then returns to the clangorous present, gong clangs, siren howls, and wheels rumbling through the dark city. The poem captures an epiphanic moment, a vivid figure of brightness. Charles DeMuth's visual transformation of the poem recreates the sense of tension as the figure five pulls and strains, projects and recedes. The movement in time is transfigured into a field of visual tensions. One notices how the five, constant in design, keeps diminishing in size as it recedes inward. The alphabetical abbreviation, N-O, you can see that for number, creates a kind of relationship between the word and the number. So too, DeMuth places the poet's name, Bill, above the top horizontal of the largest numeral. The painting is a tribute to its source and a great figure charmed with energy in its own light. In both the poem and the painting alike, there is a balance or a tension, perhaps even a conflict, between stasis and movement, stillness and action. The desire to keep moving jostles against the desire to pause, which demonstrates a certain anxiety in the American psyche. The idea of art as kinetic is recurrent. What does not change is the will to change, but there is also a counter-longing for epiphanies, for what T.S. Eliot calls the imperishable quiet at the heart of form for arrested moments out of time. So I'm arguing there's a kind of an aggressive movement towards movement, towards action, towards transport, which drives through all the American arts, but especially through American poetry and painting, although it's also very much there in jazz. At the same time, there is a counter-longing against this sense of transport and movement for something quiet, for something still, for an imperishable moment that halts time and the uh, relentless progression towards death. Emerson said, art is the path of the creator to his work. In the 1950s, what would become known as the New York School of Poets, Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery, Kenneth Koch, James Schuyler and others, took much of their impetus from the development of abstract expressionism. They responded to how American action painters enacted the homegrown notion that art is not a record but an event. As Emerson formulates it in his essay on Plato, our strength is transitional, alternating. The experience of poetic creativeness is not found in staying at home, nor yet in traveling, but in transitions from one to the other, which must therefore be adroitly managed to present as much transitional surface as possible. Frank O'Hara, who was a curator at the Museum of Modern Art, a poet amongst painters, as Marjorie Perloff calls him, was especially drawn to Jackson Pollock's work, to the way that Pollock trusted contact, painting by immersion. Pollock called his studio the arena. There's something both feverish and zen-like about Pollock's creative process. It enacted something of the bullfight. The composer Morton Feldman termed Pollock el matador, something of the dance. Pollock listened obsessively to jazz, which makes sense since there's a volatile, improvisatory feeling to many of his finest multicolored canvases. There was a risky, entrancing danger in the way he entered the zone of a painting and created an all-encompassing environment, a full-field effect. At the time of his death, O'Hara was working on a major retrospective of Pollock's work, What he said about that work might be applied to his own best poems as well, for he too created painfully beautiful celebrations of what will disappear, or has disappeared already from his world, of what may be destroyed at any moment. Reading O'Hara's poems now, one might say that his poetry in action paralleled action painting. He too prized quick spontaneity, nervous energy, incredible speed he too improvised in the presence of death. Or as he put it with comic glee in his mock manifesto personism, you just go on your nerve. If someone is chasing you down the street with a knife, you just run. You don't turn around and shout, give it up. I was a track star for Mineola Prep. (laughs) As an example of of O'Hara's poetic technique, take his justly famous elegy, The Day Lady Died. It's 12.20 in New York, a Friday, three days after Bastille Day. Yes, it's 1959, and I go get a shoe shine because I will get off the 419 in East Hampton at 7.15 and then go straight to dinner, and I don't know the people who will feed me. I walk up the muggy street beginning to sun and have a hamburger and a malted and buy an ugly New World writing to see what the poets in Ghana are doing these days. I go on to the bank, and Miss Stillwagon, first name Linda, I once heard, doesn't even look up my balance for once in her life, and in The Golden Griffin, I get a little Verlaine for Patsy with drawings by Bonnard, although I do think of Hesiod, translated Richmond Lattimore, or Brendan Behan's new play, or Le Balcon, or Les Neiges of but I don't, I stick with Verlaine after practically going to sleep with Crondariness. And for Mike, I just stroll into the Park Lane liquor store and ask for a bottle of Strega. And then I go back where I came from to Sixth Avenue and the tobacconist in the Ziegfeld Theater and casually ask for a carton of Galois and a carton of Picayunes and a New York Post with her face on it. And I'm sweating a lot by now and thinking of leaning on the John door in the five spot while she whispered a song along the keyboard to Mel Waldron and everyone and I stopped breathing. This cosmopolitan poem, which O'Hara wrote on his lunch hour on July 17th, 1959, has an engaging immediacy. It's 1220 in New York, a Friday, three days after Bastille Day. Yes, it's 1959. It has a lively forward motion, a performing dailiness. If first I do this, watch, then I do that, that carries it breezily along. There are pauses but no rest stops in the poem, commas but no periods. It's all written in a kind of onrushing ethnographic present. I walk up the muggy street beginning to sun. I go on to the bank and mistill wagon. I stroll into the Park Lane liquor store and ask for a bottle of Strega. Then I go back where I came from, the 6th Avenue, and so forth. It all has a vivacious daily charm. But while he is casually buying his European smokes, the speaker suddenly glances over at a local newspaper. His voice hits a radically different note at this moment when he spots Billie Holiday's face on the cover of New York Post and abruptly realizes she is gone. And I'm sweating a lot by now and thinking of leaning on the John door in the five spot while she whispered a song along the keyboard to Mel Waldron and everyone and I stopped breathing. Billie, Billie Holiday's nickname was Lady Day, and there's a nice reversal of the phrase in the title of O'Hara's poem, which forever marks a fateful day in the calendar. An immediate tension arises in the poem between the past tense of the title, the day Lady died, and the present tense of the poem itself. The title is retrospective, the poem is ongoing. O'Hara gives us a memory, a memory both triggered and pierced by death. Everything on the day of Billie Holiday's death takes on a kind of retrospective shine. And what initially may have seemed to be an anti-elegy, because it is so daily and vernacular, turns out, in fact, to be an actual one. Everything is memorialized on that day, hidden in place by its hidden significance. There's a dazzling rightness to the last phrase, and everyone and I stop breathing, that enacts a moment when art ruptures the surface of daily life and stops time. It's a moment of return, of transcendence recalled, reenacted in language, which also reverberates with the hard knowledge of the singer's untimely death. The New York School, which has been called the last avant-garde, had a special connection to the art world. In our art, John Ashbery has said, we want to get beyond the mysteries of construction to quote Miss Moore's useful phrase, into the mysteries of being, which it turns out have their own laws of construction. But in truth, it's difficult to think of a significant modern American poet who hasn't been influenced by the visual arts. The modernist pioneers have influenced poets from every generation and every school. As Howard Nemeroff said, both painter and poet are makers of images and traditionally, there is a connection between the images they make. As we have seen, this connection includes a wide variety of relationships between painting and poetry, but connection also makes possible a wide variety of relationships between works of art and their readers, their viewers. Paintings and poems, which in their own rights are static objects, can only be resurrected by an encounter with a person. When we read the great figure, or we gaze at I saw the figure five in gold, our imaginative interactions transform the words and the paint into moving images. That is, the images acquire the capacity both to move physically in our minds and to move us emotionally. The American obsessions with movement and individual consciousness are enacted and reenacted through its poetry and its paintings, as well as its music. I invite you to read and to gaze and to listen, to connect with these magnificent works of art and to celebrate the democratic richness and diversity of our American perspectives. Thank you.
0: That was Edward Hirsch, speaking at the Art Institute of Chicago on September 15th, 2007 as part of American Perspectives, a collaboration of the Art Institute, the Chicago Symphony, and the Poetry Foundation. You can read many of the poems Edward Hirsch discussed by going to poetryfoundation.org. You'll also find poems by Hirsch himself, as well as articles about poetry, reading guides, and other audio programs to download. This has been Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.